Let's turn to Matthew 1. It is, after all, the beginning of Advent. So, because I am a button for punishment, and because I love you guys, I've not asked no one else to do this, but we are going to read the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> Matthew 1, 1 to 16. I promise you it'll make sense. It's all worth it. Let's go. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. He's doing okay. Got this far. Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of she uh, she Shaltiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abidud. Abud, the father of... It gets harder towards the end, doesn't it? The father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Boom. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ways that your word speaks to us, even in the places that we might not expect to find it. Uh, we celebrate all that you have to teach us. I thank you for the privilege of being able to share who you are this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, I don't know if about you, when I was a kid, nativity plays were kind of a big deal. Uh, I was often cast as a king, which... I feel worked well for me. I never got the role of Joseph. I hadn't, hadn't, couldn't quite reach the mountaintop. That always went to my best friend, David Birchall, who was better at me than everything. This is something I thought I had gotten over until I was writing this sermon this week. I'm like, maybe I haven't got over David Birchall being better at me and everything. <laughs> but then you actually learn that there are no kings in the nativity narrative, that they're wise men, so now I don't know what to do with that. Uh, but for Advent this year, I wanted to focus on the people who are definitely there, unlike the kings who are kind of wise men. Um, look at the women who are at the heart of the nativity and the Advent story. 
And I've got to be honest, this isn't a particularly hard thing to do. Women kind of dominate the narrative, actually. Uh, the men are either kind of gentle, supporting characters like Joseph, or they're infanticidal tyrants like Herod. Uh, so if we focused on the men, we probably wouldn't have as many rich lessons to learn from. Over the next few weeks, Brad is going to talk to us about Elizabeth. Ashley is going to talk to us about the prophetess Anna. Uh, and finally, I will be talking about Mary. Uh, but that's only three women and there are after all four Sundays in Advent. So today I thought I would look at the women who sometimes we kind of glance over who we might not pay as much attention to. People who are sometimes left out of the story despite being at the very start of this story. So let, let me ask the question. You can put your hands up. You don't have to. Uh, when you're reading your Bible, how many of you skip over the genealogies? That's a lot of honesty. Thank you very much, guys. That's, I appreciate that from you. <laughs> so we've got people that skip over and some shy people or liars. Um, <laughs> so I understand that when I started reading the genealogy this morning, people were probably glazing over a little bit. It's kind of one name that is difficult to pronounce after another fathering another person who's difficult to pronounce. It's, it's genuinely, it's not as riveting as a lot of scripture. We've just talked about Exodus, we've talked about plagues and escape and miracles and provision. Those things feel more interesting to me. But today we're going to look at this genealogy, uh, and I've really, I've wanted to preach this sermon for like 10 years, so there's a lot of excited, nervous energy on me this morning. I'm hoping that by the end of it, you too will be excited about genealogies. Because I think it's one of the most salient examples we have in Scripture of the forgotten being remembered, of the voiceless being given a voice, of the kingdom being so much wider and richer and more beautiful than we could imagine. I'm just going to, I'm going to start with the beginning, just for the first few verses of that genealogy. And then we'll go from there. We hear that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother, oh sorry, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So this is right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is one of the two Gospels, as I say, that talks about the birth of Jesus, about that infancy story. Uh, but Matthew roots it all in this genealogy. This is the first thing that he wants people to know. And we do find genealogies all over. Also, you're probably, does he mean genealogy? No, there's an A there, not an O. Look it up. Uh, <laughs> so you'll find genealogies all over the Bible. And if you're anything like me, as we've established, you kind of skip the genealogies. Uh, but this genealogy includes some very significant biblical women. And I think that's really interesting. Also, you may hear that term biblical woman, and it may conjure up some interesting images in your head. 
uh, for a long time, especially preachers at the front of evangelical churches, have a certain idea as to what a biblical woman might look like, and then we read the Bible and realize that's not what biblical women are like, interestingly. Uh, we might have an idea of and just someone in a smock. I don't even know what a smock is, but I imagine that's what biblical women are expected to wear. Uh, someone who kind of fades into the background as soon as their husband takes a stage. Uh, but as we discover, women are so much more biblical. Women are so much more than that in the Bible. I also, uh, it's really important that I do this too, and it's horrible and it's uncomfortable, but the reality is that when we talk about women in scripture, uh, we hit some very difficult and potentially triggering subjects. Uh, these are things that are really difficult to talk about and they're difficult to hear. Um, when we hear about women in the Bible, sexual exploitation, sexual violence often follow. Uh, so, if anything I'm talking about today is too much for you, if you need to step out for a moment, that's absolutely fine. I won't mind, no one will mind. Uh, if you feel like I could have approached these topics in a manner that's more honoring, please let me know afterwards. I, I want to get this stuff right. So, let's go through this genealogy that we've just heard and look at the four women who have been mentioned. So, First is Tamar. Now, there's two Tamars in the Bible, and both of them have a real rough time um, treated pretty badly. There was a girl called Tamar in my youth group, and I, I couldn't work out. Like, I feel your parents must not like you very much to call you Tamar, given what happens to Tamars. Uh, but Tamar, we hear from Matthew, is pointed out is the mother of Zerah. Uh, and Tamar was first married to Ur, but he, we hear that he was wicked and put to death. And then she's married to his brother Onan, who is also wicked and put to death. <laughs> uh, so their father, Judah, promised her that once his final son came of age, she could marry him and he would provide for her. But he kind of welches on that deal, and so Tamar needs to be shrewd and use her mind, as biblical women often do. Uh, Genesis 38 says this. Again, the reason this is so fascinating to me, there's lots of reasons, but the fact that this woman is included in Jesus's genealogy, I think is fascinating. But Genesis 38 says this. Uh, when Judah saw Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the side of the road and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Charming guy. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is pregnant. Judah, not able to put things together, says, bring her out and have her burnt to death. Nice guy. Tamar reveals that Judah is actually this baby's father, and he recants and declares in what I think might be the greatest punchline of all of the Bible, says, she is more righteous than I. And I think I speak for all of us when I say, well, duh. So there we go. That's, that's biblical woman in the line of Jesus, number one. The next woman mentioned is Rahab, who Matthew tells us is the mother of Boaz. Uh, but this is, this is the first mention of Rahab in scripture. It says this, 
Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies to Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. These men probably could have stayed in quite a lot of places, but they stayed at the house of a prostitute. So Rahab, who is not a Jew, helps the spies, and they in return help her when the Israelites take the city. So this is biblical woman number two. The first one is a sexually exploited woman, and the second one is a foreigner who's also a sexually exploited woman. The next person we hear about in this genealogy is Ruth. Ruth, we're told, is the mother of Odeb. Uh, Ruth is not a sex worker, uh, but is considered to be something even more offensive than that in the context. Uh, she is a Moabite. Uh. So I did a bit of research this week, so I'm like, what was wrong with the Moabites? Because this is the kind of thing I do, because I love this stuff. Uh, we don't have an awful lot of history on the Moabites, but we do have this thing called the Moabite Stone, which is a stone with some carvings on it, with a bit of the Moabite history. And let's say, we don't have an awful lot, but what we do have is this stone, and on this stone it says... Uh, we know that the Israelites and the Moabites really didn't like one another. And on this Moabite stone, where the king says, I killed all the Israelites, <laughs> 7,000 men and boys and women and girls and maidens, for I dedicated the destruction to my God. So you can see why the people might be wary of Ruth, shall we say. But Ruth is a young Moabite woman. She's married into a Jewish family. And she loses her father-in-law, and she loses her husband. And when her father, uh, when her mother-in-law, who's Naomi, decides that she's had enough of living in Moab, probably because Moab is terrifying for her, uh, she tells Ruth to just find a good Moabite man, and uh, and she'll be on her way. Ruth replies, saying, "This don't urge me to leave you or turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay." Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth ends up marrying a Hebrew man, Boaz. Uh, scholars are divided for what it's worth as to whether she also was sexually exploited, uh, but we know that she is an outsider by nearly uh, every other metric. So now we're up to three biblical women in the genealogy of Jesus. It consists of one sexually exploited woman, Tamar, one despised foreigner, Ruth, and one despised foreigner who was sexually exploited in Rahab. And finally, the last woman mentioned, although not by name, is Bathsheba. Matthew tells us that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And for those of us that aren't aware of our Bible history, might not recognize this, but this is the harshest possible way that Matthew could be referring to Bathsheba. Harsh towards David, to be clear. Sunday school teaches us that uh, how David slayed Goliath, and he did, uh, and becomes Israel's greatest king, which we are told. But instead, this points to the worst thing that David ever did. Matthew doesn't want us forgetting that. He points us to some of the worst things a person can do.
Second Samuel 11 tells us that David was neglecting his kingly duties and despite knowing that Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, raped her anyway. When she told him that she was pregnant, he tries to trick Uriah, her husband, into sleeping with his wife. Uh, but because Uriah is honorable and has been told to abstain from sex, he doesn't do that. So to cover his tracks, David has Uriah killed. Bathsheba is not the first person in history to be widowed by her rapist, nor would she be the last. But her story, and especially this aspect of her story, is not forgotten. In fact, it's highlighted in the genealogy of Jesus. So this brings our biblical women <laughs> in the line of David, in the line of Jesus, to two sexually exploited women, one despised foreigner and one despised foreigner who has also been sexually exploited. Uh, at least three of them are widows as well. We don't get much more powerless than that. <laughs> so that's some rough history. Um, some of that is really difficult to hear, and that's okay. And some of that might take some time to settle, and that's okay. And if you need to process, that's okay. But the reason I've wanted to te preach this sermon for as long as I have is as much as I love the history, as painful as it is, and I love inclusion, as awkward as it can be, what, what stands out to me when I've heard similar messages to this, and even in my research this week, is, is so many writers essentially use this to say, hey, despite these women being strange to include, and, and even like despite the bad things they've done, like the number of writers that are like, oh, these women made some bad choices, as if like widows 3,000 year years ago had any autonomy, which they didn't. But despite the bad things that they've done, they're now included, and, and the voiceless are now given a voice, and, and the forgotten are remembered. And, and uh, that's beautiful and it's powerful, but I think it's really missing the point here. Because history may have forgotten those women, but that doesn't mean that they were forgotten. History might not have listened to those women, but that doesn't mean that they were voiceless. Their mentions in the genealogy of Jesus don't change their status. It only reaffirms their status. And their status is that they are the beloved of God, created in God's image and likeness. And so often, I'm so tempted to make that truth that we're created in God's image and likeness as, as my conclusion. That's where I get to. That's my final point. Like, and remember this. But I, I don't think it's a conclusion. I think it's a starting point. It's a starting point where we should all begin. You know why? Because that's where God begins. This isn't some theology that pops up midway through the Bible. Genesis 1 is where we hear this. In our image, let us make them. It's the first thing. It's the first thing. This isn't a conclusion. It's a stunning point. These women being made in God's image and likeness is not a conclusion. It's a starting point before they did anything and before anything was done to them. They stand as God's beloved. They were, they are, they ever will be. And if Judah saw the image of God in Tamar, he wouldn't have done what he did. And if David truly saw the image of God in Bathsheba, he wouldn't have done what he did. Instead, he would have treated 
her as God's beloved. And, and at our best, and maybe at my best, that's when I'm doing really well and when I try really hard. Um, that's how I'm able to see people too. Seeing them as God's beloved made in God's image and likeness. This terrible scholarship that has made these women to harlots or adulterers. The least of these that, you know, because God is so gracious, he's still able to accept them, even though they've done these things. He's somehow able to say you too. But, but inclusion and seeing those people for everything they were was always God's intention. These people are not the exception, they are the rule. Their voices, which they always had. We, we love to talk about, like, let's be a voice for the voiceless. No, 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 they have voices. <laughs> We're just not listening well enough. But these women's voices and their stories and their bodies speak a testimony to a, a work that's perfected in Jesus that all are worthy, all are welcome. That you matter so much. And, and that's one of the reasons that we as a church <laughs> welcome you and celebrate you exactly as you are. When we stare at one another and we see one created in the image of God, we cannot exclude, we cannot bully, we can't make someone an outcast, we can't reduce you to the worst things that you've done or maybe the things you dislike most about yourselves. If we see one another as God sees us, one made in God's image, we see something beautiful. We see something remarkable. We see something exceptional. Just as God has always seen Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba as so much more, even though they were reduced to nothing. God sees their hearts and hears their cries and promises them that they are not forgotten, that he hears their voices, that they are his forever. And that's why I wanted to look at the genealogy today, <laughs> to look at these places and people that maybe we skip over, to remember that they too are created in the image of God. And as, and as we go into Advent, <laughs> And in the busyness of it, and I know it gets busy, and in the exhaustion of it, and I know lots of people are exhausted. Let's, let's just do everything we can. Everyone that we encounter, let us remember that them being created in the image of God isn't something they earned. It's not something they need to prove. It is always, always, always our starting point. Let's pray. We pray that we remember to see others and ourselves as ones created in your divine image. We thank you for the opportunities you give us to share that. We thank you for the people you put in front of us to help them remind us of that. And Lord, the times where we don't listen, the times that we don't honor one another, we pray that we turn, as always, back to you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.